0: This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. This morning, we are continuing our summer message series called No More Darkness, where we are walking through 1 John. 1 John is a letter written by John the Apostle. Uh, he's also the author of the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. And in all of his letters, John and his uh, gospel, John is always telling us who Jesus is, what Jesus does, and how that makes a difference in our life. And in 1 John, his big concern is that we understand God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. He's writing to a group of churches that he had started, but he's since had to to move on to other areas of ministry, and he's got reports that things are not going well. People in that church are beginning to believe the wrong things about Jesus, and it's leading to some wrong behaviors and leading to division within their community. And one of the the potential pitfalls they they were facing about Jesus was there were some who were tempted to believe that he was not fully God, which meant that his requirements and his teachings were not authoritative in their lives. And in the section we're going to look at this morning, it's it's really built on this foundation of Jesus is the light of God sent to reveal and to save us from sin. And so from that ground, John is then going to show us this morning how we live in light of this revelation that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So if you have a Bible, we'll look at First John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. If not, you can follow along on the screen here with me. John says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful people, the lust of their eyes, and the boasting about what they have and do comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So John's basically telling us in these three verses, and, and the, the big idea we'll look at this morning is if you are in the light, don't live like you're in the dark, right? If you've been brought from defeat to victory, then live like you've won, not like you're losing. And so he begins to tell us in verse 15 that we are different. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the father is not in them. John has a separatist view of the church. Right? And this is there's language used throughout the New Testament to describe followers of Christ that teach us we are separate from the world. John he uses primarily the image of light and darkness, but in other places we are called those who are called out. Those who are chosen, those who are separated, those who have been made holy, those who have been built in as living stones into part of God's family, part of his life. We are his sons and his daughters. Once we were his enemies, now he has called us friends. It's, it's all of this language used to describe there is a state of being without Christ, and there is a state of being with Christ, and there is a remarkable difference between the two. And so John is telling us, as followers of Christ, do not love the world. Now, that admonition has uh, been interpreted in some different ways throughout church history. One of the ways that, that I think it's been interpreted somewhat incorrectly is this idea that to not love the world requires a complete, or as much as you can, removal from the world. And so this has looked at points in history of men and women who decide, well, I must live like an ascetic. I have to move to the desert. I have to move to the mountains. I have to completely withdraw from the political structures, the economic systems. This is the only way to be pure and to be holy is to separate myself from everything else. This is where some of our ideas of convents and monasteries and and things like that in church history come from, is this idea of we, to to come out and be holy is literally to leave the world completely behind us. Or or maybe you grew up in a church that wasn't quite to that extreme, but you had your own definition of what it meant to not love the world. Some churches not loving the world meant women didn't wear pants or makeup, right? Right? Not loving the world might have meant that you didn't dance, uh, cuss, or hang out with people who did. Maybe it meant you didn't go to the movies, you didn't play cards, uh, maybe it means you don't vote Democrat or you don't vote Republican. I don't know what it means, but we are experts at saying this is what it means to come out. But what we need to remember is the same author who here writes, do not love the world, is the same author who writes in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And so we have to deal with with this seeming contradiction here. Of John, on one hand, says God loves the world so much he sends Jesus to die for it. And on the other hand, tells us you shouldn't love the world because if you do, the love of the Father is not in you. Now, the, the way we understand that is in John 3.16, he is referring to the world as all of creation. This is the world for whom Christ comes, for whom Christ dies. Every living person, all of creation as a whole, will be renewed, restored, redeemed. This is why Jesus comes. The world he refers to here in 1 John chapter 2 is a a system, a, a way of seeing the world. One author put it this way. The world that John talks about in 1 John 2 is an outlook that has rebelled against God and turned its back upon him. It means, in other words, the typical kind of life that is being lived by the average person today, who has no thought of God, but thinks only of this world and this life, who thinks in terms of time and is governed by instincts and desires. It is the whole outlook of life that excludes God. This is what John is telling us. You have been called out of seeing life this way. And because you have been called out, you must now be separate from it. Right? He's helping us understand the world and its systems are broken. You have been called out of darkness into the light. So now live like children of the light. Don't try to keep a foot in each camp. Don't try to travel back and forth. If you don't want the broken results of the society you live in, then don't live by their broken rules. And then he goes on to describe this life in the darkness for us to help us have a better understanding. He says in verse 16, For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful people, the lust of their eyes, and their boasting about what they have and do comes not from the Father, but from the world. He uses these, these three ideas here, the cravings of sinful people, the lust of their eyes, their boasting about what they have and do, to define for us what life in the darkness looks like. Now, one of the, the primary deceptions that Christians and non-Christians alike fall for is that these ideas, the cravings of sinful people, lust of their eyes, boasting about what they have and do, are not that big of a deal. That you can kind of dabble in these areas and still be completely okay with Jesus. That you can engage them to a certain point without bringing harm to your soul, harm to your relationships, or harm to the world. But John is helping us understand none of these come from the Father, but they come from the world. And again, the world, he means a way of life that is set in opposition to God. And so these terms he uses help us understand. First, he talks about the cravings of sinful people, right? Now, God has given each of us desires, desires for food, for drink, for sex, for relationships, for significance, for meaning. And what sin does is it comes and corrupts those desires and turns them into cravings turns them into things that we must have, that we must achieve, that we must possess at all costs. And what John teaches us, what the scriptures teach us, is that any time we begin to live a life centered around our cravings, we will never be satisfied. Those cravings will never be fulfilled. Your sin cannot be quenched. It must be killed. You know this from your own experience. You know this from the experience of your friends and family who have engaged in some of these areas. And it's, it's in these cravings where we are most often given over to addiction, to dysfunction in ways that, that become very destructive to our lives and to the lives of those around us. And what John is telling us is, look, any time you worship your cravings, you're going to be unsatisfied. And we know this. I mean, how, how many times have we experienced, have we heard the story of those who thought that the next round of food, the next drink, the next sexual experience, the next, uh, the next level of power that I could reach, the next amount of money I can accumulate, the next possession that I can purchase, all of these. When I just get there, then I will finally be at peace. I'll finally be at rest. But when you're chasing after your cravings, it's like pouring water into a cup that doesn't have a bottom. They just come in one end and out the other, and there is never any satisfaction at all. Life in the darkness is a life where you are deceived to thinking the next temporary thing is going to satisfy the eternal longings of your soul. Then John tells us that we, when we live in the dark, we also live according to the lust of our eyes. Now, for for many of us, we might think of what Jesus said, that whoever looks after a woman uh, lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart with her. Now, that that would be true, but but that application would actually fit better with the cravings of sinful people. When John is talking about the lust of our eyes, he's describing a way of looking at the world that is based entirely on appearance. Now, this is where the, the scriptures are so incredible. I mean, you can read, there are, there are several other 2,000-year-old documents that you can read. You can read things that were written in Rome and Greece. You can read things that were written in ancient Egypt about their culture and the way they did things. Um, And most of the time when you do that, which apparently you have a ton of free time if you're doing that. uh, But if you do that, you're not going to find a whole lot of correlation between then and now. And yet, when we turn to the scriptures, we find that the issues that are being addressed, John might as well have been writing in 2018. Right, The lust of their eyes. Has there ever been a culture in the world more obsessed with appearance than our culture? Has there ever been a culture that, that ties our value to our appearance more than we do right now? I mean, you can read there are all kinds of fascinating uh, social science studies that are out there that will tell you that um, tall men typically get jobs easier and make more money. Right? That attractive people are elected at a higher rate than unattractive people. That beautiful women tend to have more friends than average looking women. You, and you can just go one after another, after another, after another. Right? Our, our current dating culture for, for many of our young adults is, is, is kind of reduced down to a two-second swipe right, swipe left impression. We know what it is to live in a place where we are defined by our appearance. And what's John, what John is telling us is as followers of Christ, those who've been brought into the light, we reject that way of looking at others. Because when you live with the lust of the eyes, with a value for appearance only, you will be blinded to what God is doing in the world. Because the scriptures teach us again and again and again that he works from the inside out, that he's more concerned with what is inside of us than what is outside of us doesn't mean we don't care about our bodies. That is part of our, our worship, part of, uh, of being a good steward of the gifts God has given to us. And yet, it does mean we should be far more concerned about the state of our soul than the appearance of our bodies, homes, or cars. And in our, in our society, we so quickly give in to that, right? We, we give up good food and good drink to fit into clothes that we really don't like in the first place. Right. You buy, you buy homes and cars to impress people that you don't actually want in your home or in your car. And yet we, we just fall into it. Like we're always ready to compare ourselves to others. And, and what it, what it winds up doing is it winds up making us sound like hypocrites to our children. Because we're trying to tell our kids, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. God made you on purpose and for a purpose. God gave me these big ears. Now he gave you these big ears. And so we're going to be good listeners. You know, we're trying to redeem whatever we can. And they hear that and they're trying to internalize it, but they live in a culture that's constantly telling them, unless you look this way and have these things, you don't have enough value. And so we're trying to correct that as parents, we're trying to correct that as a church, and yet as believers we can easily slide back into this darkness because it doesn't feel particularly sinful. But what does it do to the soul of a child to hear their mother, some precious little girl who already, for whatever reason, has her own body image issues, and to hear her mom all summer long complain about how her swimsuit doesn't fit, how that neighbor over there, well, yeah, she's pretty, but she paid for it. You know, and all of these types of things. Not that you would ever say that. You never would, because we don't judge by outward appearances. We judge by the heart. And some of you... You judge the outward appearance and decide she has a bad heart as well. But that's a topic for another day, and God can forgive you of that too. So so he tells us, look, don't, don't live this way. A life where you judge everything and everyone by outward appearances, that is a life of darkness. When God's light shines, he gives us the supernatural ability to see people as he sees them. Those who are loved and who are valued because they were created by him and for him. And then John tells us that uh, when we live in the darkness, we are giving to boasting about what we have and what we do. Now, again, I mean, 2,000 years ago, might as well be today. Like John writes about boasting without any awareness of social media. He doesn't know what a humble brag is, right? He, he's never seen anyone use the hashtag blessed, thanks Lord, or anything else that we put to spiritualize our materialism. It, it, he's never seen it. And yet he says, look, Pete, this is what people who live in the darkness do. Always ready to compete and compare. Always ready to raise themselves up above others. Right? It's boasting at its at its core is the glorification of yourself. And the glorification of yourself always robs glory from God. I mean, you go all the way back to the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. What is our first sin? Our first sin is not so much a rejection of God's commands as it is an attempt to climb up on the throne with him. To say that that's how the enemy deceives. You eat this and you will be like God. And our boasting, our look at me's, our look at my kids, our look at my house, look at my job, look at what, where I was born or when I was born or who I was born to, look at what other people say about me. All of these things are attempts to glorify ourselves, to find significance and meaning in what we have and what we do. And they bring us into darkness because God is constantly trying to teach us, you matter because you're mine. That's it end of story, when the creator of the world says that you are significant, then what you have and what you do fades to the background. And so John lays out for us this life in the darkness, and he says when you, when you do these things, it's worth paying attention to because they don't come from the Father, but they come from the world. They come from a way of living and interacting set in opposition to God. Now, again, light and darkness. He, he is painting this picture for us again and again and again. And, and for us, in the current context in which many of us live, right, a, a fairly suburban, fairly stable um, part of life where we generally know these are the things you do and don't do, where even when we sin, we try to sin with wisdom. You know, of like, well, I'll, I'll sin a little bit, but not massively destructive. So it can be easy for us, which is its own stupid fallacy in its own right. But that, again, another day, another time. Um, but but it can be easy for us to think, well, sure, you know, maybe sometimes I suffer with these cravings. Sometimes I judge by appearances. Sometimes I'm, I maybe have a tendency to boast or to brag. But it's really not that big of a deal. What John is trying to teach us is anytime you put your feet in the darkness, you've started down a path That leads to death and destruction for you, for everyone you love, and for the world around you. We have a choice as followers of Christ. We walk in light and we share light with others, or we walk in darkness and we share darkness with others. And any time you see that you are given to the temptations or the actions of darkness, the proper response is mourning, confession, and repentance. It's not to justify and and compare yourself to others and think, well, I'm not as bad as them, or maybe God doesn't really care. In the end, this will all shake out just fine. It's to really mourn. And and, and that's where I, I think opportunities like Royal Family Kids Camp like crisis pregnancy outreach, like having conversations with some of our public school teachers, with some of our uh, firefighters and police officers, other first responders can really help us understand. Because most of us live in a, a pretty sanitized bubble where the, the evil we're confronted with is always on the other side of the television. But when you go to something like Royal Family, and, and like Don and Eddie said, we had a wonderful week at camp. I mean, these kids were... Most of the week, it felt like just a regular Christian chapel kids camp, just well-adjusted kids having fun. But like Don was saying, when a, when a child from trauma begins to feel safe, they will start to let their guard down. And when they let their guard down, they'll start to tell you the, the true stories. You know, and, and we hear about Royal Family, of its kids who've been abused, abandoned, neglected. And those words, we've said them so much, they kind of roll off of our tongue. But as their counselors would tell me, some of the stories they heard, abuse doesn't isn't just this thing that happens. Abused means my my mom starved me. It means I was locked in a cage. It means I was beaten with poles and belts. It means I've had my bones broken by the people who are supposed to love me. Neglected means I've maybe never seen my mom, I've never seen my dad. Or they pop in once a year here and there, but I, I know there's no long-term hope. I was, I was out at, at camp and um, there's a little girl who came up to me when we were out at the, the birthday party. And Pastor Amy, last Sunday, so every Sunday before Royal Family, she has all of our, all of our kids from Christian Chapel, they make birthday cards for the kids who are going to camp. And so they get a, a little sheet that just has a first name on it. So the girls make them for girls, the boys make them for boys. And they, she tells them, write a message. You know, Tell them God loves them. Tell them you're happy for them. You wish they have a happy birthday. Whatever you want to write. And so this, this little girl comes up to me, and one of our, one of our counselors brought her up. And she said, yeah, there's, there's Mr. Chris. Ask him your question. And so she came up. She said, do you have a daughter named, or no, she said, do you know someone named Audrey? I said, I do. That is my little girl. And her eyes got real big, and she said, she made me a birthday card. And so we had just kind of this sweet little moment. And, and I, I even told her, like, you know what, you actually kind of look like my daughter. Like, you guys have the same kind of hair color. You've got the same cute little freckles there. Uh, you know, just just adorable little girls. And that was, that was about my only interaction with that particular camper over the whole week of camp. I don't know why she's there. I don't know her story. I don't need to know her story. And and then after camp her counselor told me that uh, one day in a in a conversation with this camper's older sister. The older sister started to tell her about how their their mom when she was in a she just said when she wasn't in her right mind would let men come to our house and pay her money and do bad things to us. And then she described for her what that was and this Mother basically prostituted her children out. And you, we sit here in church and we think the cravings of sinful people. Yeah, we shouldn't do that. Yeah, I shouldn't, you know, I probably shouldn't be looking at that, probably shouldn't be watching that, probably shouldn't be engaged in that. But still, the enemy deceives us into thinking we can handle it. But the the parent of every child we have at camp, there's not a one of them who had a child and decided, I can't wait to abuse them, can't wait to abandon them, I can't wait to neglect them. But when you live in the darkness, you're gonna go from darkness to darkness to darkness. Sin cannot be managed. It cannot be quenched. It must be killed. And this is what Jesus comes to offer us a way of victory. But he tells us, now that you live in the light, don't dance with the darkness. Don't keep going back and forth. Don't try to create a shadow land where you can have the best of both worlds. He says, all of these things do not come from the Father. They come from the world. And then John finishes by telling us that that one of the best things we can do for ourselves is to have a big picture view of life. It says, the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. He's, He's telling us, don't give your eternal soul to the worship of temporary pleasures. This is the advice we give to every middle schooler, to every teenager, to every high schooler, junior high is not all that there is. High school is not all that there is. My, when I was a youth pastor, one of the, the things I was the worst at was to empathizing with the problems that teenagers had, all right? Because just you remember, if, if you're an adult, you remember most of the problems you thought you had as a teenager, you wish were your problems now, All right. Like, I wish the biggest problems in my life were that I had a face full of zits right now. I would take that in a heartbeat over the headaches I get to deal with now. Right? And, and so when I would hear that, you know, and, and I was terrible at it. There'd be a crying 15-year-old girl on a Wednesday night telling me, like, my boyfriend broke up. And begged, like, you're fine. It was going to happen eventually. All right? Now, now, Pastor Cameron and Laura are so much more compassionate than I was. And if you're a young adult and I was your youth pastor, I am sorry, <laughs> but I was right, right? So, uh, but there's, there's just that, that difficulty. You know, you look back at it, you just wanna be like, don't worry about it. Like I can talk to a 16 year old now about the stresses in their life and, and I've become a little more compassionate, but can, can legitimately tell them like the people, the places, the things that you're worried about that are consuming your mind right now. I'm 20 years on the other side of that. I can't even remember 95% of those. So, just keep this big picture view of life. Don't stress out. This is what John is telling us. John writes towards the end of his life. You know, some people think he might be in his 70s or his 80s at this point. And he has seen things that we can only imagine. He's walked with Jesus, he's witnessed the miracles, he was there for his death and for his resurrection. And then he's followed him and he's watched as the church has been established around the world. He knows what it is to experience great victories. And he knows what it is to endure crushing persecution. And so when someone like that tells you the world and its desires pass away, that's wisdom worth listening to. That's something worth understanding. He says, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. You were made For forever. We were made to walk with God forever. And in this temporary life, all of the things, both the good and the bad, they're fleeting. They're passing away. And so this winds up being really, really good news for us. It means that those cravings you think you will never master will one day die away. It means that your tendency to boast and to brag will one day melt as you stand in the presence of God and see his beauty and his majesty for what it is. It means that your tendency to judge others by how they look will one day be stripped away as you are finally given vision to see them for the majestic creation of God that they are. Right, it's also good news for us because it means the stress, the struggles, the sickness, the financial strain, the job difficulties, the relational drama, the political upheaval, all of the uncertainties, all of the pain of life one day will strip away. What John is trying to do is he's trying to encourage us to have this 30,000 foot view of life. All right, to just pull back for a moment because when you live in the darkness... The monsters seem really, really big and really, really scary. But what John has is teaching us, no, just flip the lights on. And the monsters are revealed for what they are. They're small, they're weak, they're temporary. Again and again, the scriptures teach us this idea of how important it is for us to have a big view of God. This is why we come together to worship on Sundays. It's a it's an opportunity for a vertical reorientation of our lives. Because many of us throughout the week, we get so busy, so consumed with us, with our stuff, with our problems, with our successes, with our difficulties, that our vision is continually turning inward. And so we come together on a day like today and we begin to look up and we begin to sing about who God is and we begin to sing about his glory and his power and his might and his ability to move mountains and part seas and be faithful and express his love and we read the scriptures and we pray together and it, it, it enlarges our vision. And as your vision of God gets bigger, the size of your problems get smaller. In the week after a, a week like Roe family, this is one of the best things that I do for my soul. It's one of the best things I think you can do for your soul. Because when I sit and I hear the stories of abuse and abandonment and neglect, I think, dear Jesus, how can, how can that ever turn out well? And yet, as I start to step back and get this big picture view of God, I see that nothing has stopped him. My favorite moment at camp this year was getting to stand up and, and tell those kids about my friend, Alton Carter, who'd grown up in foster care. And, and the moment you said this guy grew up in foster care, it was dead silence. Completely locked in and, and just tell him, hey, Alton had a rough life, had a bad life, horrible things were done to him, but he made a decision as a child that I'm going to be different than everyone else in my family. And over the course of 20 years, he learned to trust God. He learned to let him heal his heart. And he is different. And now on the other side of camp, heading into another year of our mentoring club, we stand making the same prayer of God, do that again. But as we come together and we start to get this big view of God, we get the big view and we see what he's done here. And we see what he's done there. And we know he can do it here. And so whatever your need might be this morning, maybe you are firmly planted in the darkness, a slave to your cravings, your lust, and your boasting. God comes to reveal the darkness, not to punish you or humiliate you, but to set you free. And what he has done for others, he will do for you. The freedom he has brought to my life, the freedom he's brought to the lives of people sitting around you, he can do for you. And so we're gonna finish this morning. I'm gonna have the band lead us in a few songs and we're gonna try to get that big picture view of who God is and see him as the one who is at work in every situation. Will you stand with me and bow your heads and close your eyes? God, we come to you this morning as people continually in need of the power of your spirit. God, we need you to shine your light in our lives and in our world. We need you to bring your salvation and hope and healing. God, deliver us from the darkness. Plant us firmly in the light. And help us to share that light with others who desperately need it. we pray that the stories we read in scriptures, the stories we've heard from other believers, that you would do those things again. Continue to deliver, continue to heal and restore, continue to make all things new in each and every one of us. In Jesus' name. As they lead us in a few final songs, if you'd like someone to join you in some personal prayers about experiencing God's grace and his mercy in your life, if you'll head out the back doors and to your left, some of our pastors and volunteers will be ready to pray with you in the prayer room. The rest of us, we're going to take a few moments and just sing these these few songs together, reminding us that what God has done, he will do. That he is our sure and steady foundation that brings life and light in every season.